Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 11.24 p.m. Sunday night. That's right, it is not yet Sunday morning, which means I'm getting this done early. Woo! And I'm going to have this in your ears Monday morning, which is awesome. That's two weeks in a row I've actually done what I was supposed to do on time. Uh, I'm really excited for you to hear this uh, if you... um, didn't attend or watch online on Sunday. We had a guest speaker. It is our very own. We're calling him Mr. Jeremy because he works with our elementary school kids. He's the coolest. Uh, I'm going to let Hannah talk about him a little bit more, so I, I won't I won't hype him up too much, but uh, I was just really pumped. I, I thought his message was really cool. Um, he took you on a journey, made you think it was going to be one thing, and it ended up being something else, but also kind of the first thing. And uh, I don't know. I really liked it. And I just love that he had the courage to get up and tell his story. Uh, so Hannah will will talk about him a little bit more. But Mr. Jeremy, you rock. Um, if you are listening to this and it is the week this is coming out, this next weekend is a big weekend for us. We are starting our um, May small group on Philippians led by Taylor. You can still sign up for that. Go to diff.church. And click on, I think it's under groups, but it might also be under events. Just click on either one of those and you should see a way to sign up. Uh, Also, speaking of signing up, if you click on events, you can sign up for our beach day. It is this coming Saturday, the 6th. We would love to hang out with you on the beach. That's the only two things we really have scheduled on the calendar right now, other than our regularly scheduled Sunday session of awesomeness. Woo! We'd love for you to come hang out with us in person or watch online or continue listening to the podcast. Um, every week that I upload a new podcast, I'm always totally blown away at the amount of listens we have. So thank you for being such a huge part of what we do. Before I hand it over to Hannah and Jeremy, just want to mention we've got a cool bonus for you in this podcast episode. If you stay tuned to the end, you will hear an acoustic cover of The Middle by Jimmy Eat World. It was the song we played as an opener for this week, and I actually just think it really went great with what Jeremy talked about. And uh, I don't know, I love to hear Guyana sing it, and it's really nice to hear it in this acoustic stripped down fashion. So make sure you listen all the way to the end to hear The Middle. Take it away, Hannah and Jeremy. We have a special speaker named, I want to say Mr. Jeremy, (laughs) because he is in charge of our elementary school kids, and we always say, go with Mr. Jeremy. And they're not allowed to use first names because children. (laughs) I, side note, had a professor in college, and his name was Dr. Waddell, and then we went to a conference one time, and I guess technically we're colleagues now? And because I did work as a professor also, at the same school, and he was like, you can just call me Robbie. And I was like, <laughs> great, thanks, Dr. Watto. Let's <laughs> have a nice day. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So uh, Mr. Jeremy <laughs> is our speaker for today, and I'm really excited. I'm also, I'm not just excited about what he's going to share. I'm also just excited that he wants to share his heart with you, and I think it's going to be really meaningful. I have already had a sneak preview, so I know it's meaningful, but now you get to experience as well. So put your hands together. For the amazing, fabulous, Mr. Jeremy. Wow. Build me up a little bit. So good morning, everyone. Is everyone as nervous as I am about listening to me speak as I am about to speak? So, as Hannah said, I'm Mr. Jeremy. I do Sunday school with the elementary kids. Um, 
And today, well, I came up here, I wanted to come up here for lots and lots of reasons. Uh, first one is I love telling the story and telling the story of my journey with Christ. And you don't really get to talk about it much with like random people. It's not something that comes up in casual conversation. Oh yeah, by the way, this happened to me. Um, but I also wanted to go, I want to come up here and show Gabriel that if you don't kind of put yourself out there and get up on stage, then life's going to kind of be boring. And even though this is very nerve-wracking, um, what's a storyteller who can't tell stories? And I just have to have faith and just do my thing because, <laughs> boy, do I love to talk. <clears throat> so I originally had something else in mind. Um, it was going to be Punk Rock Jesus. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's great. And then I was like, oh, I got two months to write it. And then I was like, oh, I got six weeks to write it. And then I was like, oh, it's like a month. And then, <laughs> then two weeks before, like two, three weeks ago, I had a meeting with Hannah. And I was like, I'm going to change it last second. And I pretty much wrote the entire thing this last week, which is pretty on point for me. Um, so uh, my relationship with God has been kind of quiet recently. Um, I don't know if it's just his voice is really far away or if I'm just not listening. And, and it's kind of sad. Um, it's like, you know, an old friend that you, from high school that you haven't talked to for a long, long time. And um, I can still see his hand, like, in my life. And actually, <laughs> there's, there's a, a big hand. And I joke with my wife about how heavy-handed God is, because it's just kind of like sometimes a real slap in the face, and you're just like, huh, yeah, I get it. Um, but I'm going to start... Um, talking about the, you know, those defining events. I want everyone to think to themselves, what's this one defining event in your life that absolutely changed its course? And you don't have to tell me, but just think. Uh, for me, well, obviously, it's the night I was saved, but also <laughs> when I went, met my wife, Stephanie, we just actually had our 20-year uh, first date anniversary in April, which I forgot. And she says she didn't forget it, but it was a week after, so I think she may have just remembered late. Um, but I was talking to her the other night, and I was like, oh, yeah, well, I remember uh, my friend JT took us because I didn't have uh, my license yet. We went to Academy Hill and, you know, did teenager stuff. Then as we were driving home, my friend's car broke down. He had this really old beater Camaro, and she's, I think, I think her, your dad came to pick us up. I'm not sure. <laughs> So it was, it was quite an interesting first date. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, when Gabriel was born, when we actually got married, and the night I was saved. So yeah, I've told this story a thousand times, and I've said it to myself a thousand times, because these types of emotions, you know, and, and what I felt, it's really hard to kind of put into words. The, um, I had been thinking about monotheism more. I've always been a faith, you know, a person of faith, and it started out when I was a teenager as Wiccan, and then I was Buddhist, and then I was kind of a mishmash, and then I studied like Eastern philosophy and stuff like that. But one thing that really hit me was Steph said, you know, she, she asked me to take a look, you know, at Jesus and God because it made her sad that we wouldn't be in heaven together. <sighs> <laughs> so that, that hit pretty hard. And I was like, okay, well, you know, what do I have to lose? Um, and I always knew that there absolutely was something there that, you know, that I had connected to that was, that was out there. And 
that made me think of a story Gabriel asked me. He asked me to tell him a story uh, from, you know, when I was younger. And I was like, oh, yeah, we were driving to school. This is another one of my favorite stories to tell. I, I skipped school a lot in high school, <laughs> a lot. And so behind my house where I lived, I lived in Milford, Connecticut, there was a couple acres because we, were li we lived like right off a state park. So yeah, I would go, always go out in those woods and walk around. And it, uh, you know, it was, if, you're, if you're from anywhere that's cold, you know that after it snows, if it's like, you know, above 40 degrees, and the sun shines on like fresh snow, it kind of melts the top layer and then it drops below freezing and then it freezes the top. So you walk through it and you see very distinct crunches. And I remember that specifically, distinct crunches, crunching through the woods. And I look up at the top of this hill is this massive stag. Like, geez, this thing was huge. And you know, these big antlers and he's maybe like 10 feet from me. And I look up and whoosh, the big, you know, cause it's cold out. So the steam's coming out of his mouth. And then these two little does like come up alongside of him and I'm just like <gasps> and then they book it off into the woods and I run up and I get on top of the hill and I see them just kind of you know prancing out um and <laughs> that you know it's it's I could feel it like that that magic that was there um but so I said Steph you know I was like why not yeah I love studying religion I love talking about I mean now talking about specifically Christian theology but just really any faith I love talking about and, you know, I, I laid there one night. I got out of work. She worked mornings. I worked evenings. And I got out of work, and I was about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, something like that. And I'm laying in bed, and I'm thinking, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, God, Jesus. And I had a thought about, like, you know, what if, like, God's energy is, like, you know, floating through the void, and then it... it goes into singularity and and then, you know, the universe is created or, or if he chooses to do it. And in my head, it was like, it looked like a, uh, like a manta ray almost <laughs> bouncing from singularity to singularity, creating these universes. And I think that is when it hit. So I had a religious experience and now that's a pretty broad term and means a lot of things to a lot of people. So I'm not going to try and like describe or define what that is, I can just tell you exactly how it felt. The first thing that I remember is the sky like ripping open and water just pouring down into me, like, like a dam breaking almost. But it also felt very specific, like, like a finger came down and poked me like right in my chest. Whew. The next thing I remember is being filled up with like water and in John Chapter four, verse 14 says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become him in a well of water springing up to eternal life. So I could actually feel every single cell in my body at this point, and they were all filling up, up right to the point of bursting. And you know, like in a couple, you know, glass of water, you fill it up and then you get that surface tension, that little bubble on top and like the slightest little shake of the table will make the, that's exactly how I felt. Um, and the next thing I remember feeling is love. Now, very specifically, I didn't feel loved by something, even though I knew in my head that I was loved and I didn't feel love for something, even though once again, I knew that I felt love for something, but it was just like the, the pure, raw emotion of love, which was <laughs> breathtaking. And 
then the, the flood water receded, which probably came out of my eyes because I was, and I shook Steph awake, and I'm like, I'm saved, I'm saved. And of course, she had to be up for work in like two hours. So she's like, and I couldn't sleep, so I went down the street to Dunkin' Donuts and probably started scribbling in a notebook like a madman. Um, so, and yeah, that's the best way that I can explain it. Now, in the last hundred years or so, that phenomena has started to be studied more and more. An early psychologist from the early 1900s um, named William James, he actually did a, a semi-scientific study. It was more like a narrative inquiry where he went around and talked to people who had these experiences and put them, you know, and recorded them. It's, uh, it's in a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And it's a, it's more, science is a, is a loose term. It's more just like, you know, uh, lectures and stuff like that. But it's really interesting. Um, I would suggest it's thick. But if you have like a couple weeks, I would suggest reading it. Um, <clears throat> so a, now we have much more advanced tools, brain imaging and stuff like that. And there's actually a new subset of neurology called neurotheology, which they have some studies done. And you can actually see you know, religious practices like meditation and prayer physically affects the brain. Um, people who have gone through these types of experiences have different parts of the brain shaped differently or stuff like that. So I'm not going to go too deep into the science of this because there's lots of big, even at the end of this thing, I have like <laughs> quotes and, you know, scientific studies and blah, blah, blah. And that's not going to be fun for anyone. But now I'm going to take a moment to get us out of this story. And I told all my friends that they had better watch me get up here and speak because like it's a big deal for me. <laughs> so um, and I told them that I'm going to say a word, which that word will be banana phone. And they need to text me this word they have until this coming Sunday. That's when we play Dungeons and Dragons again. They have until this coming Sunday <laughs> to text me this word or they will suffer the consequences. Um, and I actually just texted them the, the YouTube <laughs> channel. So the second part of my story. Um, as a teenager, I was diagnosed with attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and major depressive disorder. Now, I remember telling my school how much trouble I was having. Like, I just didn't feel right. I was on shaky ground. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what was going on. And, of course, an adult talking to a 16-year-old. <laughs> Everyone feels that way. Don't you worry. You're in high school. Everyone feels that way. Well, my mom believed me. And for all her faults, she you know, was a real champion for me when this whole thing happened. Um, she took me to a neurologist, and he diagnosed, diagnosed me with those, too. Now, I spent a lot of years, lots and lots of years, trying to get the right combination of medications to, you know, function. And this was actually happened before Obama, the Affordable Care Act, where you got to stay on your parents' health insurance until you were 26. So when I turned 18, I was off my father's health insurance unless I was able to get, you know, my own kind of health insurance, which back then... Jobs didn't offer that to anybody. This was like a real grown-up job. So, um, long story short, I had turned to self-medication to kind of numb all these very drastic, wild swings that I had, and I wasted a lot of my life. Well, I don't want to say wasted. I, I collected experience and wisdom 
maybe not optimally for many years, and I was a very high-functioning addict. And if anyone wants to know more about that, they can ask me, but that's a whole nother, you know, 20 minutes I could talk. So I'd gotten clean, right? And things are difficult because you get clean from prescription drugs. It's, it's very hard. Unfortunately, due to another surgery, which you may have noticed this massive scar I have on the back of my neck, I had a brain surgery in 2016. So it was, yeah, I had to take painkillers again because it was, it, was, it was a pretty invasive surgery that went like into my brain. And they, once again, if you want to ask me about that too, that's a really fun story. Um, and so I relapsed. Now that winter was rough because, oh geez, it was 2016, it was July, I had the surgery, I'd relapsed, and me and my wife got married that September, and I was still like, you know, in the throes of the relapse. And that, you know, ever since I had converted, the Christmas had been just been so magical. I loved it so much, but that year I could feel it, it was different. It just didn't have that same, I just felt very kind of empty. Um, and I could feel it getting worse and worse. There's these, you know, because I, around that following January, I'd gotten clean again and kicked the pills and it was just getting worse and worse and worse. So I would stay up for days at a time and then I wouldn't get out of bed at all. And I, somewhere in my house, I have literally 90 pages of ramblings front and back of just whatever. Uh, so I crashed hard. I crashed really hard. And a coworker asked me, um, cause he wasn't sure, you know, his mental health. He asked me, he was like, oh, how does like depression, like, well, like what's the worst depression you've had? And I was like, well, it kind of feels like someone like husked your soul out. Like they just went in with ice cream scoop and just, and you just feel totally empty. And you could see the look on his face. He was not expecting that answer. Um, but that was probably the worst, um, the worst depressive episode I had ever had. Um, and now, this may be triggering for some people, but I think it's super important to be very, very honest about mental health stuff. Uh, my whole life, I kept super quiet about how I felt. Like I was, I was honest about my illness, but I wasn't like, I'd say an advocate for it. I didn't really tell people exactly how bad it was. You, you learn over the years when you suffer from mental illness to kind of soften the blow for other people because it might make them feel uncomfortable. And um, at this point in my life, uh, I had such a bad episode that I called uh, like a mental hospital. And I informed them that for the first time in my life, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't like actively suicidal, but I, I just didn't know. And they were not very helpful. I remember him saying, he's like, are you going to kill yourself? And I was like, well, no, but like things are really like uncertain right now. And he's like, well, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you. I'm like that's super, thank you so much. Um, so I knew unless I had gotten this figured out that it would, you know, I, I wouldn't have long. I, I felt it like it would just keep getting worse and worse and something would happen. I'd either turn back to drugs or I'd take my own life or something like that. And that was, that was a really scary feeling. So I went to a new doctor because I 
worked at Starbucks and I had health insurance, thank God. Um, so I went to a new doctor and I told them, you know, my entire history of mental illness. I must have told a hundred different people that same story. So I got really good at telling it. Um, and the doctor said to me, looked me straight in the face, and he said, you, sir, are a pretty textbook case of bipolar disorder. And the moment he said that, I'm just like, yep, okay, that makes sense. Um, this bipolar can actually start to present in people as young as 16. And that's not super uncommon. So my, that original doctor wasn't too far off because ADHD and major depressive disorder are two ends of a spectrum. The, when I was, <gasps> when I was um, under a manic swing, I was all over the place. I was buzzing. I couldn't stop, like I physically couldn't stop talking. Like I, I had to sit in my brain and be like, okay, Jer, you can't breathe. You're talking so much. You need to stop. I was all over the place. I had so much energy. I couldn't sit still. And then when I cycled into a depressive state, I could barely move out of bed. And then that feeling of just utter emptiness was just, it's, it's, I hate to say profound because it is. And you don't want to add something like a word like that that seems so positive to something that is so negative, but it was really profound feeling of emptiness. But now I am properly medicated. And uh, everyone in my family will tell you how night and day it's been. Um, I have a cocktail of drugs that work really, really well for me. And this is the second time I was saved. Now, for about 15 years of my life, I did not know which me would wake up. And that, that was also one of the more exhausting parts. So I'd go to bed one night, and I don't know if I'd wake up super happy and excited and ready for life and, you know, ready to go and I'll read this book and I'll do this and I'll do that, or if I'll wake up the next morning and just not want to get out of bed. So if you looked clinically at this religious experience, you can classify it as a manic episode, which it was. That's exactly what it was. It was my brain, my busted old brain, sending certain chemicals to different parts of my body, telling it to feel these things, and it just can't control how it shoots these chemicals into my body, but you know, the, the sensations, physical hallucinations, the you know, auditory hallucinations, um, it was textbook. So and a person could write that off as just, you know, just crazy old Jer, right? He's just, he just had a manic episode and you know, no big deal. But for me, you know, I didn't even really come to this conclusion until years and years later, even years after I got my bipolar um, diagnosis, that it, it was in fact a manic episode. And I've been thinking a lot about it recently, is that for me, this physical illness, it, I mean, it can be two things. The, the physical experience I had was so profound and solidified in me something that I had always known and it changed really how I viewed the world and how I interacted with it. It wasn't a curse. It wasn't a disability. It wasn't God punishing me for being sinful or an embarrassment or weakness. He gave me the ability with this disease to experience something. And now I was struggling a bit on how to connect this biblically because I didn't want to just tell the story. I wanted to kind of, you know, draw it back to 
the, the Bible, which is, you know, what we're here to learn about. And has anyone ever seen The Prince of Egypt, the, the animated movie? Isn't it good? It's really, really good. It's so, it's so looked over. Like it's, so last Sunday or Easter Sunday to Sundays, like I don't know when time, um, you know, we were like, oh, let's watch Prince of Egypt. I'm like, oh, that's great. That's a perfect idea. This is the first time we had got Gabriel to watch it. So, I mean, we knew he'd love it, which I don't know if he did. Um, not as many toys in it. So, you know, the, we're watching it, right? And the burning bush scene comes on. And it's a very, you know, powerful scene in that movie. And you can see Moses, he's crying, and then he comes down from Mount Harib and he's telling Zipporah, and you can see him like very animatedly jumping around and he picks up a staff and he's pointing at it. And my first thing in my brain was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I know that feeling. Um, I've, I've told somebody something with that kind of, you know, oomph. Um, and so from Exodus, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So, these two different experiences, and I'm not going to theorize about exactly how physically Moses experienced this. I mean, there's, I was looking online, there's tons of stuff that drugs or, you know, the burning bush was actually uh, this special plant from Africa. It's, once again, I'm not going to get too sciencey about it. But for, him, for me, it was a feeling of water filling me up and bursting. But for Moses, it was fire. And it was a fire that wouldn't burn him and a light that was so bright that he had to actually avert his eyes in fear of its glory. So now to say it changed his destiny or revealed his destiny, um, such a transformative experience that he just left his comfortable life with his Midianite in-laws tending sheep, just hanging out, going back to Egypt to, to liberate his people. Now our minds such complex things. And yeah, like I said, whatever Moses experienced on this physical plane is, and the spiritual level, is two sides to the same coin. For me, my personal journey, this diagnosis was a gift. It is a heavy burden that had almost crushed me. But I feel so powerfully like a in all emotions, not just joy and sadness, but anger and, you know, we've seen, um, uh, what's, I can always, uh, Pixar movie, The Emotions, thank you, Inside Out, I always forget the name of that one, um, like all those characters are in my brain right now, like they're big and they're strong, um, but it was a superpower, it's a gift and a curse, and once again, it's two things, like, Two things can be true at the same time. And, but mental illness, it's a difficult concept to talk about and something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, it takes a lot from families and it takes a lot out of people. You can't even say like, oh, you know, my mental illness is worse than your mental illness. That's not the point of it. It's not the suffering Olympics. We're not trying to win 
the mental illness race. It's, it all takes a lot from us and, and it changes the way that we perceive the world. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but I mean, my, my life is so blessed. So I know that every step I took through the world and every step that I took through time has led me right here with all you sharing the story. And I needed to tell this. And even though, I mean, the nerves have kind of chilled out a little bit, but even though um, I, I knew someone in this audience may be suffering or someone in this audience knows someone who is suffering and they need help. Or 10 years from now, the, the YouTube algorithm will bring this to some kid who's 16 years old and he'll stumble across the different church website and it'll be like a time capsule and maybe that this will mean something to him. And I was looking at Gabriel last night and it brought tears to my eyes because I know how that feels to that, that aloneness where it's like are you tell, you're screaming at people, I feel this way, I feel this way. Nobody listens, nobody understands and hopefully that this will um, Hopefully this will help. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that I'm here. Now, this is kind of a tangent, but I absolutely love this story. And I think it is um, also helps to solidify the idea that, that one thing can mean two things. So this has been attributed to the Middle East. It's been, I've heard it like talked about Solomon. Um, an Eastern sage was desired by his sultan to inscribe on a ring the sentiment which, amidst the perpetual change of human affairs, was the most descriptive of their real tendency. And he engraved on it these words, and this too shall pass. It is impossible to imagine a thought more truly and universally applicable to human affairs than expressed in these memorable words and more descriptive of that perpetual oscillation from good to evil and from evil to good, which from the beginning of the world has been invariable characteristics of the annals of man, right? These are nice big words. So evidently flows from the strange mixture of noble and generous with the base and selfishness inclinations. As the Sultan saw these words inscribed, it actually brought him sorrow that and to him, he thought all the good things in my life will pass instead of seeing it as, oh, any troubles I have will pass. Hey, don't write yourself off yet It's only in your head you feel left out Or looked down on Just try your best Try everything you can Don't you worry what they tell themselves When you're Don't buy it.
Just take